0: Again, feel free disappear at any point. Um, This is fairly informal uh, now, so uh, it's not that you're in and locked in. Um, You can wander away at any time you like. Uh, If I'm answering the wrong question, do interrupt and explain quite what you meant, if it was different. Okay, so the ones from tonight. How does remembering your sin and loathing yourself fit with confidence that what you have confessed through Christ is paid for and covered? Um yeah, so the um uh I think sometimes a helpful distinction there is a difference between put it this way, uh legal guilt and evangelical guilt is how John Owen described it. Legal guilt is I've done something against God and he doesn't and I deserve his judgment. I am legally guilty before his court. Um And once you've confessed your sin, that is entirely inappropriate, entirely inappropriate to feel that. You've confessed your sin, you are forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ if you trust in him. Now evangelical guilt is, but I hate the fact that I've done it and I don't want to do it again. So a man commits adultery and confesses it to the Lord and confesses it to his wife and um, two good friends. And um, he repents before the Lord and knows with confidence that he's forgiven, that that does not count against him. God loves him still the same. Now he's confessed that sin because he loves him as Christ, because he's clothed in Jesus Christ. So there's no legal guilt. It's entirely appropriate for him to feel guilty, evangelical guilt, I have sinned against Jesus Christ. And even though I'm forgiven, I don't like that. And I don't want to do it again. And I'm going to take this feeling of shame and say, I'm going to move on from here. But I'm using this to say, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to grieve the son. I don't want to grieve my wife. So there's forgiveness. Yeah, of course. Of course there's forgiveness. But there's an appropriate sense of, that was bad. That was bad. And I'm very grateful I'm forgiven. Now that fades with time. But it was entirely appropriate, it fades with time and not instantly. So there's full forgiveness and you have absolute confidence of God's love for you. Be fully assured of that through Jesus Christ. But it was a residual sense of, I really bogged up there. Entirely appropriate, You did. Yeah, you did. What words of warning would you give for those who have a tendency to feel guilty when they are not? I.e. those with over tender consciences, given what you've said this evening. Well, why are you guilty? What is it you've done that makes you feel guilty? So, in one sense, know yourself is always helpful. Do you lean towards hard conscience, do you lean towards tender conscience? And um, have good friends who remind you what you are. Um, So if you are tender conscience, oh, I've done so many things wrong. Well, let's just examine that. Why are you feeling guilty? Well, I, I don't know. I just vaguely feel guilty. Well, don't. Uh... And sometimes you do need friends to speak truth into your life. But the, the, the other hand is, the other case is true. How are you? Yeah, fine. You know, what are you, um, what's God changing in your life at the moment? Yeah, not a lot, because I'm pretty terrific. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, one or two things I'm teaching him. Uh, at that point, you need friends to come and say, mm, let's think about that a bit more carefully. So sometimes you, you need others to, to remind you the sort of character you are. Um, but if you're feeling guilty when they're not, I mean, what is it? so I guess you could sit here this evening and think, oh, I'm, I, I feel guilty because I don't feel guilty enough. Um, well, yeah, it probably isn't you then. <laughs> probably. Probably. Um, But I guess the, the, the question is it's hard to some things sometimes are sometimes slightly harder to answer to a crowd. Why are you feeling guilty? What is it you've done? Is an absence of shame the same thing as apathy? E.g. struggling with the same sin again and again gradually leading a shift from guilt to hardened apathy? Yeah, Often I think that's true. Often. Particularly if you're conscious that there is something that you should change, but it doesn't matter that much, doesn 't matter that much. Then, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a bad place to be. to consciously live with sin but not do anything much about it. You're only going to reinforce it. So that is bad. How can we respond to apathy, absence of shame, where well, you can repent? And one way of doing that would be to tell others, if you're in a prayer triplet, that's the appropriate place. If you're not, it's really good to be in one. But to say your prayer triplet, um, look, I'm really apathetic about this, which should probably change in my life. But if I'm honest with you, I don't care. And to be held accountable. Of course, once this? the most fundamental way to pray is, Lord, can you convict me of my sin? Can you give me a deeper sense of shame? So I dare you to pray that. It's quite a big prayer, isn't it? Quite a big prayer, that. I mean, if you do pray it, I take it God will answer it, and you'll be running straight back to him and saying, thank you for Jesus, in a way you've perhaps never done, with a depth you've never done before. But I think it would be an entirely appropriate thing. Lord, will you give me a deeper sense of my shame that I should feel before you. One of the best songs we sing. I don't know, it's a very invidious thing to say, but Beneath the Cross of Jesus, who has that line, there are two wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my unworthiness. Yeah, it's very true. It's very true. There are two things. The, the two go hand in hand, you see. The more you understand your guilt, the more you run to Christ and love him. You never sing, my chains fell off, my heart was free. You never feel it, rather, unless you you know you've been in a bad place. So grief and mourning sin is very healthy. You don't stay there, but to do that and then give great thanks is entirely healthy, entirely normal. Why is God doing things for our good when he only saves some people? Why doesn't he save everyone? If he doesn't need our praise... It all seems rather cold and impartial. He chose some, but frankly, it didn't matter. Uh, I'm not sure I'd agree with the logic of the question. If he doesn't need our praise, it all seems cold and impartial. I wonder why you automatically take it that way. God doesn't need our praise, but created a world and people, in order to share his glory. So Father, Son, and Spirit existing in absolute beauty, harmony, perfect relationship. And God said, I'll share this with people. That's not cold. That's a great act of generosity uh, and kindness. It's in Jesus' language of, of John 17. We will be brought in to share God's glory. It's an extraordinary thing it's not cold and personal. That's as warm and relation. So cold and impartial. That's as warm and personal as it can get. Really, God says, "Come and share what I have in my perfection." Uh, but, 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 but the first half. Why is God doing things for our good, when He only saves some people? Yes, well, it isn't for everyone's good. So there in uh, Ezekiel thirty-six. Of course, he says, um, Look, I don't... You, this... I don't know what the population of Israel is at this time. You, 500,000 Israelites. There's nothing wonderful about you. But I will act for the good of the world. So for the good of the, the nations overall. So overall, it is, of course, good that God creates a world and saves a people to be in relationship with him. Yeah, it isn't for everyone's good. So what is the classic biblical expression? Uh, Romans eight twenty eight: "For you know, in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him." It is for those who love Him. Um, so you can you can only say that as a Christian that um, right now I could not be in a better place than I am because God is working for my good. Whereas if someone who wasn't a Christian has to say, right now, I should become a Christian. So, yeah, it isn't for everyone's good. Um, but God chooses to pull some into relationship with him. Yeah, but not all. Wow. Yeah. 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 I want to come back on A couple of weeks ago we heard how God would use idols to apparently push people away from him does this mean God is deceptive doesn't this open a little bit of a logical can of worms how can we be sure God is telling the truth to us hmm. this was ezekiel chapter 14 Let me read a couple of verses. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore, speak to them and tell them, this is what the Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. Okay, so do you see the picture? If you were here, let me remind you. Otherwise, let me explain. God says, so there'll be people will not worship me. They'll be worshipping other gods. Marduk, Molech, money, their career. And it'll be such a, to to the extent it's such a stumbling block. It's a wicked stumbling block, is the phrase that comes three times. That they keep tripping over. So they'll come to a prophet and I'll say to the prophet, this is God's word. Worship your idol. And you think, wow. Wow. That is extraordinary. God will give bad advice to a prophet, will give tell them a lie. And one says that's no different to Romans chapter one, whereas God says, because of mankind's sin, God hands people over to their sin and says, You're yeah, alright, get on with it. What does the wrath of God being revealed look like according to Paul in Romans chapter 1? It isn't thunderbolts and lightning. It's, I'm leaving you to do that. I'll just withdraw and let you make a mess of your lives in sin. So God will do that. You can get so caught up in idolatry, says Ezekiel, that you not be able to see wood for trees and God will let that go on. But, he does say what he's doing. So the mercy of God comes in. By the way, sometimes you'll go, to, you'll go to a church and they'll say to you, you love money? God says, love money and live for money. And I'll let that happen. But just so you know, that will happen. I'm warning you that will take place. So his mercy, his kindness comes in the warning that sometimes he'll let you hear lies. What would have been the response of Ezekiel's original hearers to the prophecy in Ezekiel 36? Would they have been disappointed when they felt they did not receive a heart of flesh? Would they have been disappointed when they felt they did not receive a heart of flesh? Uh, Is that before he prophesies or afterwards? Okay. So the original theorists wouldn't have experienced that. They'd say, okay, I have this heart of stone. Super. Um... Uh, but would they have had a chance to experience having a heart of flesh? Maybe. Why do you assume that they didn't receive them? Okay, so, I mean, this is, of course, um, this is largely looking forward to the work of Christ um, in the New Testament. So uh, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus Christ dies, rises, ascends to heaven, sits at God's right hand, and then the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2. And people are saying, oh, yes, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, just like Joel 2, etc." So this spirit transforming hearts and giving new hearts is uh, a phenomenon most obviously post-Pentecost. And yet it clearly existed pre-Pentecost as well. So, just as one example, um, uh, David in Psalm 51 is happy to say, Create in me a pure heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. So, David is quite happy to say, Please don't abandon me. If your spirit goes from me, I will lose, not my kingship, doesn't say that, I will lose the joy of my salvation. So it seems David is clearly one who has the spirit within him. It doesn't say upon him, anointing him for kingship. It says within him, which gives him assurance of his salvation, which of is the mark of the spirit now. So I think you have to say something like, the spirit is at work in the Old Testament. He dwells primarily in the temple, um, in the throne room of God, the Holy of Holies, which is why you have encounters with God there. He is upon prophets and priests and kings, equipping them. Some saints, as a David, clearly had the spirit within them. However, the phrase often used, what was a trickle becomes a flood in the New Testament. So every believer has the experience that only a few had in the Old Testament. Now, you still have to say, how is anyone a genuine believer? That's a work of the Spirit of God. So in the Old Testament, in what sense do the Old Testament believers have the Spirit? In a lesser sense than in the New Testament. How do you... Well, look. At that point, you know, some use the language, New Testament believers have the spirit within, Old Testament believers the spirit upon. If that works for you, that's okay, because um, it's just saying a different degree. Upon is not particularly Old Testament language. Um, there's a difference. Uh, but it's one of degree rather than Absolute. Because you can't be, you can't have faith unless the spirits are working in your life. So, we're never told Abraham has a new heart, but he's a man of faith. So the spirits are working in him. Fair to say, that the, um, even within great evangelicals, there'd be some disagreement over the language you might choose to use on that. You just have to say there's a difference. So the language of regeneration, rebirth really is new testament language but the pictures and the metaphors of it they're, they're all there in the old testament you have to say they have they've got the spirit in some sense um that might be it unless anyone wants to publicly ask one more yes in ezekiel 36 clearly verse 33 um you've got multiple fulfillments there haven't you Um, So, uh, end of 36, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, on the day I'll cleanse you from all your sins, I'll resettle your towns, the ruins will be rebuilt, the desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. Now, that all happens in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the return from exile. So, towns are resettled, ruins rebuilt, land cultivated, okay? First, excuse me, verse 35, they will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. Well, that's a little strong. Um, so at that point you're saying, a bit like the Garden of Eden. Hmm, that sounds a bit like the Garden of Eden a la Revelation 22, where you've got a land which is fertile and rivers running through it and trees. Um, that sounds a lot like the new creation. I'm not sure you'd call anything in this world Eden. Well, people do. They call their boys Eden, don't they? It's a boy's name. But um, uh, you know, you wouldn't call a place Eden as such. So, multiple fulfillments. In some sense, the um, yeah, end of the sixth century BC. In other sense, yeah, new creation. Why don't I pray? Father, it is impossible to spend any time in this wonderful book of Ezekiel without being deeply humbled about our status as people who have fallen, as those you might describe as whores, as those you might describe as um, discharges. It's a book which truly humbles us, humbles our morality, how you look upon us, humbles our wisdom because we don't understand everything here. But it does exalt you. We recognize that you are a God far above us. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And in Ezekiel, we really see that very, very clearly. So, Father, help us. Would we, uh, again, work hard to understand you rightly? And then when we come to the, to the end of what we can know for certain and understand, would we be silent and worship you? Because you are the living God. And we are not. So, Father, we acknowledge that again this evening. And uh, thank you for those of us who know you as Christians. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see you. And we pray we'd see you doing that work amongst many, many others for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen.